Welcome to episode 55 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I am your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent, Darren Mott. And in this episode, we talk about some good news in the cybersecurity world, and we talk to more folks at the National Cybersecurity Summit in Huntsville in 2021. So as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cyber Guy podcast. In this particular week, I'm trying something new. I've created a new YouTube channel under the banner Cyber Smart, which is kind of my overarching um, brand, I guess, if you will. And so for this particular episode, I am also doing, um, I am doing this particular podcast on YouTube. So you're going to if you want to see the podcast as opposed to listen to it, that's something you're interested in. You can go to my channel and you'll see it there. The last part of this with the interviews will be just audio because I don't have that in video format. But going forward, as I do new podcasts with new interviewees, I will record them if they allow me to do so and have that on YouTube as an option to watch as well. So I hope you, if you go to the YouTube channel or if you're watching this on YouTube, you bear with me as I deal with the the open broadcast software and try to get all those things configured correctly. I think some of my lighting is still off. I'm still working through those those particular hiccups, if you will, but I appreciate you taking the time with that. I appreciate those folks who are sending out and, and letting people know about the podcast. One of the things I put on LinkedIn recently, I did some QR codes for both this podcast and the Cyber Smart podcast. Um, and so you can find those on LinkedIn if you want to share the QR code with someone um, so they can find it easily. It'll take you to the websites and then you can figure out how to download those onto your podcast browsers, if you will. Uh, if you want a copy of those QR codes, feel free to email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com or Darren at cybersmart.com. Cyber in both cases, spelled C-Y-B-U-R. So feel free to do that if you are so inclined. Before we get to the interviews, a couple good news stories for today, November 8th, 2021. The first one is from the Department of Justice. So I talk a lot about how a lot of times it's hard to rely on law enforcement to get any justice in the cyber world because you have crimes occurring in the United States. The bad guys are overseas somewhere in certain countries, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea are not going to extradite their bad guys over to us. But if the bad guy is in a country that is friendly to the United States, then, then bad things can happen to them. So I'm going to read from this particular article that came out today. The Justice Department announced today recent actions taken against two foreign nationals charged with deploying the Revo ransomware to attack businesses and government entities in the United States. An indictment unsealed today charges Yaroslav Yasinsky, 22, a Ukrainian national, with conducting ransomware attacks against multiple victims, including the July 2021 attack against Kaseya, a multinational information technology software company. They also announced the seizure of $6.1 million in funds traceable to alleged ransom payments received by Yevgeny Polyanin, 28, a Russian national, who was also charged with conducting Revo ransomware attacks against multiple victims, including businesses and government entities in Texas on or about August 16th, 2019. So a couple things here, a couple good, couple, you know, it sounds good, but, you know, so let's go to the Ukrainian first. So he was allegedly responsible, or at least the evidence they have, responsible for the Kaseya attacks, which launched ransomware to like 1,500 different victims. Uh, he was arrested in Poland and currently awaiting extradition there. So he will probably be extradited back to the United States, probably charged, probably plead guilty, and probably do prison time. So thumbs up. That is a big win in the cyber world for the FBI and everybody involved here. 
Um, on the other hand, they got $6.1 million, another good sums up there. At any time you can forfeit and seize money from bad guys, that is a good thing. Um, the problem here is that 28-year-old uh, Polyanin in Russia is probably never going to be extradited back to the United States. Now, if he gets stupid and travels outside of Russia at any time to a country favorable to the United States, he will likely be arrested and extradited because I'm sure there is an Interpol red notice out on him, which basically says if he goes into a country that has an extradition treaty with the United States, he could be arrested and brought back to the United States. So thumbs up, way to go FBI. Dallas and Jackson were the field offices that investigated these crimes. So thumbs up to them. That's a good feather in their cap. The other good news story from today, and it's only good in the sense of how it came to be what happened. Now, the actual event is bad, but the what I liked about this was the private public sector cooperation that you see in this. So this is from Tech Radar. You can go find the article online. But it says a password manager hacked to launch wide-ranging cyber attack against businesses worldwide. And there's a multitude of business types that were attacked here, clear defense contractors, government entities, schools, things like that. It used a very popular cloud service or cloud uh, services, cloud cloud product as a service is called Zoho, which does some email stuff and, and some other cloud service um, activity. Uh, and a vulnerability within their architecture allowed bad guys to launch attacks against people using Zoho. That vulnerability has been fixed. The problem with that is that not everybody, I'm sure, who uses Zoho has downloaded or patched that particular vulnerability. So while it's good that the vulnerabilities have been patched, the problem here is not everybody has likely patched it to this point. Unless Zoho has an automatic patching feature, which they may have, which may have... May, may make that better. But the good thing about this article is there was a cooperative effort between the NSA, DHS, and Palo Alto Networks to share intelligence about these attacks and then release it here as a news article to talk about these things. So let's see if I can find a part of this. So um, the attacks were detected by security researchers at Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 Division, right around the time when CISA, a DHS component, along with the FBI and Coast Guard Cyber Command, who knew there was such a thing, were talking about threat actors exploiting this vulnerability. So the fact that those entities came together to share this information is a thumbs up. So anytime you have public and private sector entities sharing intelligence, that is nothing but positive there. Um, the issue, I would say, with some of this other stuff that we have to deal with is one of the things I'd like to see more of, especially with things like this, is what is the exact postmortem of how the vulnerability was exploited? In other words, if you were a Zoho customer uh, and you were victimized by this, how did it happen? What was the code that came in? How did they get through the front door? That I don't see in this article. Maybe it's somewhere in the vulnerability report, but I doubt that's the case. And when Joe Biden, uh, when President Biden, excuse me, released his executive order on cybersecurity several months ago, one of the things in there was the creation of a cybersecurity Safety Review Board, I believe it's what they call it. Similar to the NTSB, but for cyber incidents. I have yet to see any reporting coming from that entity, if it even exists, talking about here's how this bad thing happened. Like Colonial Pipeline, how did it happen? We know it was a bad password on an old VPN that allowed the attackers in, but once they got in, what did they do? What did the malware look like? How do you identify the malware? Well, all those kind of things are valuable for everybody who's not in the government to know these things, to protect themselves, to find out what they need to patch and fix and things of that nature. So those are two good news, news articles. So share those with friends that you know or have. Um, I talked about them a little bit on my LinkedIn page. You can 
Um, find that uh, here at, uh, actually it's over here, or it's over there. At uh, That's my LinkedIn account, Darren, at linkedin.com slash in slash Darren Mott. You can feel free to follow me, connect with me there. I'll connect with, pretty much connect with anybody who hits me up for that. So feel free to do that. So my interviews this week from the National Cybersecurity Summit here in Huntsville a month and a half ago. Uh, Going to be three guys. There's there three short interviews. They all have different perspectives. One is Jeff Bennett. He works for Dees Research. He's also a podcaster, so I talked to him for a little bit. I also talked with Leonard Jacobs of a country called a company called Net, Net Securus. So um, he deals with some OT stuff and things of that nature. So that was a really good interview. I hope you enjoy what he has to say. And then Jamie Miller from a company here in town called Mission Multiplier. Um, Jamie Miller is a really smart guy. Um, and he knows a lot of people. He has a lot of intelligence about, about opera, uh, open source intelligence and how you can go about trying to find information on yourself and protect yourself. Uh, so, uh, I hope you enjoy these, uh, interviews. Like I said, I don't have those videos. So if you're watching this on YouTube, it's just going to be audio from here to the end. If you're listening as usual through the podcast, you don't have to change a thing. All right, so I'm honored to be joined now by Jamie Miller, the president and CEO of Mission Multiplier here in Huntsville, Alabama. The, from what people who said, the, the, if you need to find someone, Jamie's the person to talk to because he's in the Rolodex somewhere. So, Jamie, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, I think people are being very kind when they say that. <laughs> okay, so let's take a little bit about, about your company, Mission Multiplier. How long has it been around? What's it do? What's the, who's the client base? That kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Mission Multiplier is a cybersecurity company here local to Huntsville. We're a small business, uh, hub zones status. Uh, we focus on all things cyber, uh, from you know assessment, penetration, program risk assessment, uh, engineering, operations, uh, governance. We do both government and commercial, so we go after government contracts, we do commercial uh, work, mostly to other defense industrial-based contractors, helping them become compliant. Uh, and then we also do some tools and technology, software development, specifically developing uh, cybersecurity products uh, that are that are innovative. So, uh, yeah, we kind of we're very niche. Uh, got a lot of amazing people and uh, doing some really amazing work. Uh, one thing that I do like to highlight outside of the innovative work and exciting things that we're doing is that we're very community-minded and community-focused. So for every hour an employee works, we direct a portion of our company profit to a local charity of their choice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so that way, you know, as we grow, you know, our employees, our families, the community writ large grows. So uh, it's been very impactful here. Huntsville's a very values-driven community. So all together, I feel very humble just to be doing what we're doing and be part of the ecosystem here that's very passionate about cyber and uh, just, you know, really embracing what's going on in the community and what's happening. So what's your background inside? Where did you, how did you get started? Were you, were you one of the unicorns that you saw that cyber was a problem? That's the first thing I'm going to do. And that's how I'm going to roll over you. Like all the rest of us are kind of like, Hey, that looks kind of cool. I should probably go into that area. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I, I kind of really fell into it. Right. Like almost everybody does with other things. Uh, I, you know, Early in my career, actually, my, my undergraduate degree is in international studies, so I don't even have a technical degree whatsoever. Uh, I started, I was very entrepreneurial uh, when I was younger. I started an internet startup company, and uh, that crashed and burned. That's a whole other podcast discussion I'm happy to share with you at <laughs> okay. another point in time. But uh, then I got into Booz Allen Hamilton, and I was in the Washington, D.C. area at the time. Kind of grew up right when 9-11 happened, and they stood up the Department of Homeland Security, and cyber became kind of this big issue. And Kind of got on uh, several, you know, key projects and had the opportunity to kind of learn and, and to understand cyber. And I just, I fell in love, right? It was just an amazing uh, community, exciting around problem solving and just kind of new elements that I just, just found fascinating and just fell in love with it. So 
we spoke at a, at a conference at Athens State up here, up the road, several months ago, and you were before me, and it was very fascinating listening to what you said about how criminals are building profiles on people. And I think that's something that most folks don't realize that, A, it's happening, or don't, don't think it's happening to them because they don't have anything anyone would want. And it's kind of, the way you showed it, it's not that hard for the general user to kind of go out and figure out how easy it is to find information on themselves. Yeah, it's really a critical topic that everybody really needs to embrace and understand. I mean, the reality is, particularly in Huntsville, I mean, this is a, a, a very affluent community. There's billions of dollars of government contracts that are you know coming across the wire. And so people see opportunities to exploit people, right? So mm-hmm. how do I get a piece of the action? So to do that, they, they need information, they need intelligence, they need to be able to have an angle, right? So they look to the weakest link, the, the person, right? So how can I get information about them? And uh, I may actually want information about this particular uh, program manager or this you know, luminary in the government that has this you know, work that they're releasing, I need to get information on Or competitive intelligence, hey, I know I'm competing against another company, I want to know what they're doing, who their team with, and what their strategy is. So people want to know who you are, where you go to church, what are your kid, you know, where do your kids go to school, what kind of sports they're in, where you are, tracking information about you, uh, what kind of groups you're involved in. Like they, they want to know where you are, who you're talking to, even so much as actually watching you and following your car, seeing who you're meeting with, taking that information to kind of piece together uh, competitive intelligence, right? Because it, it's just it's there's so much money on the line, so. What happens now, and most people don't aren't aware of this, uh, and I don't want people to be paranoid, uh, but there's some level of awareness you need to have. That, and I know this is happening for me, straight up. I mean, I'm in the community, I'm out there, president of Cyber Huntsville, I've talked to a lot of different organizations, so I know what's happening. But people want to know who you are, what you're doing, who you normally team with, who you work with, what types of new technologies or intellectual property you might have. Uh, you know, and, and get, to get access to that, maybe it's you know the person you sit next to at church. Maybe it's, hey, I'm going to a kid's game, your kid's game, soccer game, and hey, who are you talking to, and you're sharing information. So the whole idea is you can piece together information and how to get it. Um, I told us a quick story about there was this big government procurement, and there was uh, a group of adversaries that were looking for how to get that intelligence, and it turned out they wanted this information that was on a server in this guy's house, this person's house. And... uh, they used a variety of uh, techniques, tactics, and, and procedures to you know, figure out where that information is, when the people are going to be away, via social media, and so they were able to kind of go in there and, and you know, so you know, easily access the information, and then they got upper hand, right? They kind of know what's happening, uh, and then there's the ability to be financially uh, to secure financial information. So, anyway, it, it's. I have a whole discussion about this, but the takeaway is that everybody is being profiled to a certain extent, especially if you're a leader in the community, right? They want to know what you're doing, who you are, who you're consorting with. And, and you got to act like that is the way it is, right? So you want to just not necessarily put your information out there. you got to protect yourself adequately. Uh, you, you want to have the appropriate level of controls and awareness, really, that, hey, this could be happening. That might It is happening. And, and just acknowledge that and, and really, you know, behave in a certain way that really embraces and accepts that information is out there and it could be used against you. Uh, and, and so you're you're not going to be surprised if something like that happens. So are there specific sites that you would recommend? Like just, let's take the basic end, the basic user who's not 
been in technical the, the, the technical world very often. Are there easy places that are user friendly for them to go to? Just kind of get a general. I know there's Spokio and things like that, but yeah. are there better sites that are more less well known that are more effective for that? Yeah, you know, I've I've been pwned. Uh, yeah, I mean that's you know one of the big sites. Like basically, it captures if you've had a data breach on like you know Target credit card or some other site. OPM, actually, if you're office personnel manager or government employee, they, they, they have some of that information. So that tells you kind of a list of uh, organizations that might have been hacked or breached. You may have your information out there, right? So again, the key is to act and understand that your information might be out there. And so that, hey, you know, people might know more than they should know, right? So, but really it's coming down, it comes down to behavior, right? How are you behaving? What information are you putting out there? Do you acknowledge that people might have more information than they should about you? So don't, I mean, don't do fan financial transactions online, you know, that are large uh, without, you know, validating, you know, who you're talking to and what it's for, uh, you know, make sure that you don't sh- overshare, right, where you're going, what you're doing, because uh, all that information, unfortunately, can be used to piece together the profile and then ultimately be used against you or be used to pivot to somebody else, right? So it, it's, a, it's a weird world that we're living in, but in our local community, it's, it's happening. Uh, quite a bit. So what you were mentioning before that your company has a new product that is very useful for some of these things. We'll talk a little bit about what that is. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. So we, we've uh, spent a lot of time and resources in developing what's called the Mars Suite. It's a security incident event management solution, uh, really fo- leveraging some uh, AI machine learning to, to help automate the collection of data on your network and to focus on behave- driving behavior change. So we use aspects of risk scoring to, to help drive the security practitioners to be more efficient and effective with their time. So what we found was we did some studies in looking at traditional security operations center environments, your SOCs, and what we found was that uh, on nearly every single, and I would say pretty much every single SOC that's out there is incredibly inefficient, insanely inefficient. And we were like, what the heck is going on here? Why? Why is it so inefficient? Well, it turns out that it's not your business processes or the tools of technology that you have, but it's more intrinsic to that. It's the person behind the keyboard, right? Everybody is essentially an irrational actor. So we just make bad decisions, right? So I was coming here this morning, I stopped at McDonald's and got whatever uh, breakfast sandwich. It was totally unhealthy. It's something I shouldn't have done, right? But I did it. It's easy. It should have been Chick-fil-A, not yeah, McDonald's. Exactly. Come on, I, should have, I should have gone to Chick-fil-A. But same precedence, right? I mean... You do stuff you shouldn't do because it's easy, and, and you go, so essentially these SOC analysts are going down these rabbit holes, and I used to be one of these guys, hey, what's the new zero-day attack? What's the new malware flavor of the day? Let's prosecute that. Let's examine that. So, But the reality is and the, the science proves this out, but by going down those rabbit holes, it's taking your eyes off the prize, and so you start doing things that are less effect, effective than mitigating risk to the mission. And so the whole idea with our solution is really focused on giving you the data analytics through risk scoring to help you prioritize your workload so you focus on the things that matter most to mitigating, mitigating the risk. Um, and they're even going so far as using the analogy of like the, your step counter or Fitbit, we present the different geographies or component groups of your organization against each other. Hey, I get a score, I get an A or A minus. These other groups have, you know, D minus or C minus or whatever. And so the behavioral science, you know, is this numerous case studies have proved this out, but if you have transparency around kind of how well you're doing relative to others, you're going to actually improve your performance, right? So in a step counter analogy, like if it, you know, it shows that I only walk 100 steps a day, but my team walks 10,000, everybody sees that, it motivates me to step more, right? 
So the whole premise around uh, our product is, hey, you get scored, and everybody sees how you're scoring, and it's I got to make improvements. So I, hey, I have these vulnerabilities, I can fix them. Next time the skin data comes in, I, I get. So I have actionable int- access to actual intelligence to actually make meaningful changes. So it's really kind of revolutionizing the the, the way you, you you operate. Uh, and my friends at NIST uh, I have a lot of friends at NIST, but you know they. You know, they say, "Hey, you got to do all these controls; are all important." But the reality is, not everything is equally as important, right? You got to focus on the stuff that matters most to your environment. So, if you have vulnerabilities, hey, it's great you have a critical vulnerability, but you need to know and correlate: is it is it is it a vulnerability that's impacted by a threat in the wild, and does that vulnerability impact a critical asset? If it does, that's probably something you want to do first, right? So. We have the ability to take the data and correlate it and present it in a meaningful way so you know what is most important. So we've gotten a lot of legs on it. We've got it on the Department of Defense approved products list. Uh, we've, it's been exciting uh, innovation for us and it really kind of has, uh, put us on the map. So it's, uh, it's been an exciting time for us as an organization. And uh, yeah, just feel really grateful uh, with the work that we're doing and the impact that we're making on the community. So you make an interesting point with NIST there regarding um, ranking different controls they don't, they're not all the same. That's right. How come NIST hasn't looked at that and said, okay, look, we have these 120 controls under NIST 800-171. Yeah. And then prioritize them saying, look, if you at least, and maybe they do, I haven't read the whole thing. I've mean, not read it cover to cover, so maybe they do say this, but like these 20, if you're not going to do any of the other ones, these are the 20 you should do and almost rank them so that if you're a practitioner and you're saying, look, I, need to, I know I need to deal with this, especially if you're in the DIB community That's right. because CMMC is going to incorporate those 120 plus what are 110 i guess plus 20 others that's right so and then cmc i think does this wrong where if you you got to pass them all or you fail whereas if you prioritize and say look these 40 you got to pass these and then because they're the most crucial why don't they look at those that way yeah i mean so at the highest level nist does say hey you need to do you know a business impact assessment and do kind of a mission uh you know what's your critical assets and What's your, you know, what's important for you and your asset inventory, but they, the application of the controls based on that is not in the prioritizing the way that you described, right? So it's almost an all or nothing, or you got to do it or you not do it, and I, I think that unfortunately is a mistake. You really, and that's what the whole premise of the critical security controls, the CSC, right? Like, what are the top, you know, twenty critical controls that are more important than others, right? And some of that fluctuates depending upon your mission and what you're doing, right? So. Uh, there has to be some ability to tailor and have flexibility in how you apply them and what should be most important. And then you also then look at limited resources, right? So I, I only have so much money and time. What is most important for me to mitigate my risk? That's really what it should be based on, right? Not just doing everything just to check a box. Uh, so, again, I think NIST, to their credit, they're working on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the application of CMMC, I know it's evolving and there's some uncertainty around it. And DHS has this pathfinder, you know, competing pathfinder program they're developing. So there's a lot of fluctuation in the community right now around how to handle this issue. And it's very philosophical, right? Like, hey, what are the appropriate controls? You know, what's most important? How do we ensure that the defense industrial base is secure? Uh, I, I don't have a good answer for you other than that. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So, and if you look at, so CMMC, so if you look at, in cybersecurity, it seems like there's a lot of buzzwords always. Yes. So CMMC was a buzzword for the last two years. Yep. Now you have zero trust, application whitelisting, yep. AI has always been around. That's right. Which one's the important one for a company to focus? If, they, if the focus had to focus 
Uh, so now I'll, I'll rephrase uh, CMS into compliance. Compliance yeah. is a buzzword. So if you're a company and you, you're hearing all these things, and you're not a technical company, but you've got an IT guy, but he's, he's dealing with patching and making yep. sure the mice work, what, what buzzword should be the one word or the one area that companies should say, that's the one i got to pay attention to moving forward? Yeah, I mean, for me, we recommend, uh, you know, providing uh, consulting to companies is, hey, you got to get a handle on your risk. So uh, having like a risk assessment, because again, what are those key critical assets, DOD term, you know, cyber terrain, like key cyber terrain, what is the really important stuff that you don't want to get hacked or popped or, you know, and then you got to protect that. And and that's what you got to focus on and monitor it and, and, you know, make sure you're doing the due diligence to, to mitigate risks to those assets. Other things, hey, they may not need to have as much, you know, uh, involvement. But you got to focus on the, the jewels, right? The crown jewels. See, yeah. that's and I didn't. We didn't prep that question. And the reason I say because I talk about crown jewels on my podcast all the time. If nothing else, figure out your crown jewels and protect them. Yep. So I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I here, I'll give you ten bucks when we're done with that. <laughs> Fair so thank, enough. Yeah. Jamie, thanks so much for coming in. Um, I'd like to have you on another time. We can go do more, a little more in-depth yeah. on your experience and what you've seen cyber change and where you think it's going, because I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, I love it very much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. All right, so I'm joined now by Leonard Jacobs, the CEO of NetSecurus. Yes, that's correct. And founder. And founder. Okay, sorry. CEO and founder of NetSecurus. And you, where is NetSecurus located? We are currently located in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Okay, so... Right down the road here from Huntsville. Three hours away. That's not bad. So let's before we get into what your company does, and we're going to talk about operational technology security in this particular round of interviews because I don't get a lot of people in that world to talk to. So this will be great. What is what got you into cybersecurity? Are you were you like a unicorn that said, "Hey, I'm going to take computer science. I recognize this is the future, and cybersecurity is important, and we got to protect uh, all of the SCADA and ICS systems." Or did you fall into it at some point later in life? Um, well, it's a long story. <laughs> I started in 1981 working for a mini computer company out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, called Modular Computer Systems. We worked in the OT space, though it wasn't called that back then. What was it called? Duster Control, I guess. Okay, yeah. Um, we, we had, our mini computer systems had the fastest I.O. bus on the market back then, in, and I started with them in 1981, as I stated. And uh, my first customer, well, first of all, I got to go back a little bit. Uh, we, uh, this was right after college. I did not get a bachelor's in engineering or computer science. Uh, I got the job out of default. My brother worked for them. Okay. And his boss saw that, uh, saw me building some serial cables for my brother. He was a systems analyst for that. I went went to visit him. I tried to get in the Air Force. So I was waiting for the Air Force to admit me in the um, officer's training school. And so I went to visit my brother. Found out later that I didn't get the slot. That's another story. Okay. We can leave that to another day. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, and um, and I was doing, I was a wire wrap tech. All our boards were wire wrapped. But we were in a lot of industrial spaces like John Deere and mm. U.S. Steel. And I did that for two years, do, running, uh, traveling around the region out of Chicago, fixing engineering changes into boards. So you're talking like they're, they're the systems they use, they're, they're um, that's what I'm looking for. Well, I'm losing my train of thought here. They're, whatever the John Deere was building, the systems that built those to get the... We, we were, our computers were used in the testing of, okay, testing, gotcha. of their engines and their tractors. Yeah, I'm thinking of the, 
why can't I think of what the stupid word is? The like if you go to build a car, it goes across a separate set of Oh, the assembly line. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's not like a Monday or Friday. I think yeah, I, uh, yeah assembly line. So did, so did they, were you part of that? Was Were your computers part of that as well? The, I don't remember it being part of the gotcha. assembly of their products, you know, running the manufacturing line. But that would still be OT. That's that when we're was, talking about OT. Yeah, exactly. We're talking that, exactly. Exactly. Yes. That would still be OT. Yeah. We did a lot of work with the auto manufacturers of Detroit. I spent a lot of time in Detroit. Okay. Um, so... I did that for two years, and then they made me a field engineer. So I started repairing and maintaining systems. And my first customer was U.S. Steel in Gary, Indiana. I lived up on the northwest side of the Chicago area, and I had to drive there every day. I had mm. 16 mini computer systems there. That included printers, uh, tape drives, the big tape drives, and disk drives. Whopping 800 megabyte disk drives. Right, the five and a quarter? Yeah, no. These were big bigger platter, than that. Okay, big platter with a, with oh a, yeah, yeah, okay. A, you know, before the five, a pack. Yep, and and four hundred megabyte <laughs> with packs. We had smaller drives too, but and so that that's where I got started in in um, in computers. I, I wanted to after I found out I wasn't accepted into the Air Force. Um, I decided I wanted to go into electronics. I always enjoyed electronics. Until my brother said, why are you going to do that when I can get you a job with the computer company? I was going to go back to school mm-hmm. and get the electronics degree. And, um, and so I went to work for them. My brother said, pack up the bags, you're going to get the job. Monday morning, I got the job. Um, and so that's where I started. And I, I worked for them about four or five years. And then I went into medical electronics, repairing medical equipment, which in a way is OT. Sure, yep. Uh, because I eventually ended up repairing CT scanners. Okay. There are motors involved. It spins. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's OT. Um, and then I got off the road then and went to work in a healthcare organization, managing uh, vendors for the healthcare organization. And eventually, you know, all a lot of this was pre-PC. Right. So we didn't have internet. We didn't have PCs. And eventually we did. My first computer was a Commodore VIC-20. Yeah. Yep. Me too. Me too. Four hundred dollars for it, I think. At a store in Woodfield Mall in the Chicago area, and you had to you stored your data on a cassette deck, right? Yeah, cassette yeah. deck. Yeah. Did you upgrade to the Commodore sixty four? No, I never did. Never, did. never okay. did. Um, I ended up eventually getting a PC. Okay. And for years, I built PCs for myself. Mm-hmm. But I I eventually became a manager at the, one of the healthcare organizations for their um, for, for the IT. Um, not the IT department, but we maintained all the PCs and printers and laptops for this healthcare, major healthcare organization. So I became the manager of that. And eventually, uh, I moved on to Y2K Project, managing that for about 18 hospitals until that job ended. That's when I started my company. Okay. Oh, okay. Now, did you recognize a need for what your company was going to do, and that's what made you move into it? Um, uh, OT, we did IT um, cybersecurity for years. Sure. In the beginning. But I saw there was a need mm-hmm. in OT, and I and I started getting. I got a contract with a with a utility, and that started the OT for me, a major utility in the Twin Cities. So then this was uh, around 2000, 2001. You're saying? Um, no, this would have been. Yeah, it would have been somewhere in that time frame. Okay. Early on in that. So you were an early adopter to OT, because because yes. obviously even 
at that time, the whole cyber the whole cyber world was still trying to figure out what security was, exactly. and OT wasn't even a was an afterthought. No, was Yeah. So, so what does your company do? What did they provide to the o, to, to companies that need OT support? And how sure. do you, and how do you, how does that interface with the IT side of the house? Okay, I can talk about that. Okay. So, um, because of that contract with the utility, I started out as a. Uh, they hired me originally to, under the contract to do uh, architectural uh, reference, reference architectures. Uh, but it was mostly on the IT side. And I just worked my way in up the ranks, basically, in that contract to become uh, head of their OT um, cyber engineering group. That's how it evolved. In the beginning, you have to, I guess I have to go back a little bit. In the beginning, I was the only operator of my company. It was tough. I didn't have a sales rep. Sure. You know, and so I depended on getting contracts wherever I could. Some of it was through headhunters. Some of it was, but I wanted to learn more about OT. So I saw it as an opportunity. So eventually I, um, I did that and all the other work I had to do. And I eventually got hired other people. But... From day one in IT, we were doing a network security model. And we still do that today, but we have evolved it to handle it in the OT arena. So how does that work in the OT? So how do you do that in the OT arena? Because obviously the packets move a little differently. And yes. for, the, for those who, who, who don't know what we're talking about, OT is operational technology, and that is a set of controls that, that monitor valves and control things and your non-traditional not information technology. It's, it's right. what makes things spin and work and all that kind of exactly. stuff. So, exactly. so how do you so how does how do you monitor that? How is that monitoring different than how you monitor on an IT side? Um, not much different, okay. except that our software that we open source software that we use handles some of the operational technology protocols, and so we use that to determine if something bad is happening in the environment. So do you guys do? So do you do the monitoring yourself, or you provide the capability for companies to monitor it on their own? We we do it ourselves. Okay. They hire us as a service. Gotcha. Okay. So you're o, you're OT sock as a service, so, so yes, to speak. Exactly. That's exactly what we are. Okay. But in addition to that, we do other things. Mm-hmm. We also help them with their policies and procedures. We handle uh, ISA IEC sixty two four four three as the uh, predominant standard around operational technology. And so we use that um, and that side of it. We actually have two columns of services. We have the protective services, and we also have the consulting services, where we look at, um, we, we do specialized pen testing and vulnerability assessment because, as we know, that can damage. The right. IT side can shut it down, cause business outages, and worst case, it can hurt people. Yeah. So how often have you seen that happen, where a company who doesn't realize that if they do a vulnerability test on their OT side and doesn't, don't really know, don't have the experience to know that they can break the stuff when they do it, how often have you seen that occur? I have not seen it occur very often that's because good. they're very cautious. Well, that's good. So there's... Well, okay, that, we have never done it. Right, right, right. I, I'm, I wasn't implying that you no, would. I, I'm just yeah, saying, yeah. No, no. So that brings me to a question that I've seen on the IT side a lot, is when you talked about policies and procedures... When before you come in, how many of your clients have those to start with? Or are they all starting like, the, oh, I didn't know I needed those. That's helpful. Thank you very much. It's about 50-50. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. So it's, it's needed. Um, 
The other thing that we do on the protective side is we do cyber threat hunting mm. on the OT side. And as we know, as I spoke a little while ago at this conference, um, we uh, I spoke on that topic, cyber threat uh, hunting in the OT, because many of those systems don't have enough memory, CPU power, or even any kind of disk space. Uh, you have to do it from a network standpoint. Mm. There are no agents you can put on those devices. There's, not, there's re no resources to put agents like in an IT arena. Now, on a SCADA server, yes, you can put agents on there as long as it doesn't disrupt the functionality of the SCADA. So that's another service that we offer, too. And that's one of our newest services. Okay. So one of the... There's always news articles about, oh, China's in the power grid or Russia's in the power grid, stuff like that. How... How realistic are those headlines? And if I'm an adversary and I want to get into, let's say, the power grid, how easy is it to do that from an OT vulnerability standpoint? Uh, let me answer that last part first. Okay. It's not that easy. Okay, that's good. You know, I think it's press drumming up. Sure. I hate to be against the press, but... It's, no, be, it, I'm against them all the time. Feel yeah. free. Go to town. <laughs> I, think, I think they um, blow it out of proportion. Absolutely, yeah. They even blew the Colonial pipeline right. out of proportion. Oh, yeah. Colonial chose to shoot, to shut down the SCADA for the pipeline, but press blew it out of My bigger argument water. on that, I know that part's wrong, yeah. but DarkSide did not hack Colonial Pipeline. An affiliate of DarkSide used their service to do that, but it wasn't, I mean, DarkSide got money out, but that's, that's the whole thing. Just ask, the, ask a second question would be great. And the same thing with Colonial Pipeline. Yeah, yeah okay, they, it wasn't an OT breach, it was an IT breach. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. We we believe that that uh, we many of us believe for the uh, the ransomware attack on I forgot the name the, the cardboard manufacturer in Atlanta. 3M. Uh, no, it's not 3M. I forgot their name already. I don't remember. <laughs> we, we keep going. I'll look it up. Yeah, you. we're talking. We, mm -hmm. we think that that um, they truly did get attacked on the OT side. I mean, okay. that's at least what the rumor is. Um, in the maritime industry, which is very hot now and very worried about cyber cyber attacks, there are shipping lines running autonomous ships, cargo ships. Was it Westrock? Westrock. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Westrock. We, there's a belief that Westrock did get truly hit on the OT side. Was there any That's, post? Was there any post mortem to that to say how they did it or what what at what control they got access to? If there was, I did not read about it. Okay. Um, and, and you bring up Maritime's a good point because I think Maritime is is probably the majority of their networking is probably going to be OT network versus IT network. Exactly. Correct? They yeah. are a power plant, a ship. People don't realize yeah. this. It's a power plant. It's a water plant. It's a propulsion plant. The propulsion makes the electricity for a ship. Mm -hmm. So does your company, do you have to make solutions when a, when a client comes in, let's say it's a maritime, so do you have to create a solution specifically for what they have versus for what the power company has versus what the healthcare company has? Are those all are those all the same solutions or do you have to, or do you have to kind of modify those because of what they have? Um, they, the basic premise is still there. Okay. As far as monitoring. The footprint of what we use, what we put there to do the monitoring might be different. Okay. So, for example, if a power company wants us to put something in a substation, it may be rack-mounted or it might be DIN-mounted. So DIN is the connector that puts on a rail, mounted on a rail. Mm -hmm. 
um, for your audience. Yep. Um, so it depends on on what their requirements are, and we can do any form factor. It's just a matter of sourcing. Right. So, and, and, and how much space they have to put it in kind of thing and how their connections are. So, let me go back to the healthcare piece for a minute. You mentioned that earlier that you were in healthcare. So, yes. how concerned are you with the news that, that currently is being shown that healthcare is really getting pounded from a, from a ransomware perspective? And I assume most of that is IT related. But yes. still, that impacts the OT side of the house. Because if your IT breaks, you can't get to the OT piece, then what are you going to do? So... Well, the big part in any industry, healthcare or otherwise, is that if they're hitting the IT side and your order management, if it's an industry where you have order management or production and you need supply chain, it's generally on the IT side, mm-hmm. not on the OT side. Okay. There's a belief that the OT side, it's my belief too, that the OT side should keep some of that data so they don't shut production down when they can't source something. They still have records of mm-hmm. the, the supply chain. So they can still place orders for their raw materials. Right, right. So how do you see the OT threats change? Or how do you see the OT environment changing over the next, say, five years? Because the threats are going to evolve to recognize that is a valid area of vulnerability asset, as, access I should try to get to. And it might be they need per, they need individual access to the network itself as opposed to just being able to hack in remotely. But do you see Attention. the OT networks changing? I'll start that one over again. Just making a note where I have to edit this out. So um, no problem. So do you see? So let me make sure I get the question right. How do you see the OT environment changing in the next five years? Is it going to get more like the IT, where software is more updated to more more current specifications versus you know a lot of the OT is still on old you know Simmons and Rockwell and all that old technology? Are they moving to be more modernized to to connect more directly with the IT network? Are they going to stay isolated the way they are and just kind of deal with what they have? Well, it's my belief that they still should stay isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, If the business side needs information from the operational side, I believe it should be a one-way connection and not through a firewall. Mm -hmm. I think more and more uh, unidirectional gateways or data diodes should be used in that environment. And all the standards call for that. Even 82 talks about it, and 82 references that you should be using 62443. And are most companies sticking with that? I mean, I assume I, most are going I think it's going to be a mixture. And, mm. and the manufacturer of, the, of these devices have to cooperate with the, or cooperate with these, right. these customers because it's, they're the big holdup in this, the patching process. I'm not saying all of the manufacturers of OT equipment are like that, but a lot of them are... Old-minded. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, that's the proper way to yeah, say that. Yeah. Um, I, I see that um, the attacks are not going to stop. Right. And the bad guy, it's like water flowing down. You know, water will flow to the, its lowest point. The attackers will continue yep. because they are either going to disrupt, which is one of their big initiatives, is to disrupt. I don't think ransomware is going to be long-term, at least for OT. It's going to hit a point where it's just not beneficial. 
and I think the bigger issue for the OT side is the threat is not going to come from the criminal side of the threat spectrum. It's going to come from the terrorism or war, warfare-oriented areas that are going to recognize that there's an advantage to being in those systems when it comes time to have to close down the power plant or close down the financial sector. And so do you find that your clients recognize where they stand in the, I, I got to assume they do, where they stand in the, the scheme of importance to what they have and how they need to protect it? Um, I believe that would be the case. Okay, that's I good. Agree, I would agree with that. That's good. Um, so, so if someone wants to find NetSecurus, where do we find them? How do we get to them? Well, you can go to our website, HTTPS dot, the normal stuff, yep. www.netsecurus.com. We also have another URL that's probably easier. Okay. It's www.cybersafeday.com. Oh, that's a good one. That's our motto. That's much, yeah, that's awesome. Well, Mr. Jacobs, I appreciate you coming out. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time. And, and I apologize if any of my questions sounded stupid. Because oh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not an OT professional. There's never a question that's stupid. <laughs> Fair enough. Only stupid people ask the questions. Well, maybe. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, sir. You. So I'm joined now with Jeff Bennett from Dees Research and a fellow podcaster in his own right. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Thank you. I enjoy meeting you at the Cyber Conference and look forward to hearing some more of your podcasts. All right. Uh, so let's talk about your podcast first. So okay. what is your podcast and what's the, what, uh, what does it talk about and who's it for? My podcast is called DOD Secure, and it is for clear defense contractors, and we talk about defense contracts, especially the ones that you develop um, classified con- Controlled on class, right? Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me reset. Yeah, so what we do is I talk about how to protect classified information on classified contracts. We don't talk about classified information specifically, but right, how right, to right. manage it. Sure. How, how to set up an excellent security program to protect classified information. Cool. So so let me ask this question, because the company I work with, we deal a lot with CMMC stuff. So how is that? Has that been incorporated into your podcast, and what, is, what are folks thinking about CMMC and all that stuff going forward? That's a good question. We specifically focus on um, guidance as provided by the National Industrial Security Program Operating Manual. Okay. And so what I'd like to do is speak to um, small clear defense contractors who are trying to navigate that world. Um, CMMC is a good uh, program to protect CUI, as you mentioned, controlled unclassified information. And I would love to expand the scope of my podcast to include that discussion. Uh, Right now, I'm always looking for people to interview. Mostly, I just get up there and talk about the NISPOM and sure. how to yeah. interpret it, especially right. with a new one being issued this year. Yep. So, what's the so speaking of that? What's the key changes within that that companies need to concern themselves with? Um, it's totally rearranged. Okay. The same information is there, but I will say in a nutshell, the same information but less specific. Um, there is more guidance on smaller matters, but the specificity that was providing in the older NISPOM uh, doesn't exist as much anymore. Let me ask you this question. So let's say I'm a small company, but I'm not in the dip per se, but I, I'm in an industry like, say, retail that doesn't really have cybersecurity guidance or any kind of guidance like the NISPOM provides for contractors. Is, are, is there a specific, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a specific compliance framework for cybersecurity within DOD that would translate to what I'm doing or that, that I, I, should, I could use as my own framework just to try to give myself a basic cybersecurity understanding. Yeah, I would incorporate the 
uh, the NIST guidance that's there, it applies to, or it can be applied to every business. They've got great practices and great, um, I guess, good common practices that you can incorporate to improve the cybersecurity of your organization. So like NIST 800, 171, or yeah. 53, and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that, that's correct. Great countermeasures there. Okay, so let's talk about your company, Deesh Research. What do they do? What's their specialty area? Do they have a booth here? Yes, they have a booth here. <laughs> and we invite everybody to come out and look at them. I specifically work at Deesh doing a program protection. And what we look at is protecting a weapon system from the supply chain that builds it. Mm. And we're looking at the competing components that make up a weapon system and try to pinpoint some type of or quantify risk in the supply chain that acquires it. So let's talk about that supply chain for a minute, because really, I think if you look at most of the systems that we have from a national defense perspective, the big issue is not the big, the prime contractor, they're Lockheed or whatever, they're going to have their security in place. But what do you find when you look down the subcontracting chain? How low do you have to get before there's really not a whole lot of cybersecurity involved or where they really need to work on what they're doing? Is it, does it start right at the, like the first subcontractor? Like, well, that person's got problems. Start, let's work with that company. And then as you funnel down to the smaller widgets that make up that larger piece, does it progressively get worse as you go further down? I wouldn't say worse. I would say people generally have good common practices, good hygiene, but a lot of it is not documented. Mm. And and I would say to the small um, businesses, the one or two person up to 50 businesses, that, that um, it would be a good idea to put your processes in writing so that it is consistent and that everybody is on the same sheet of music. And that seems to be the big issue really with... With most companies I've, I've, that even my company's dealt with is they just don't have policies in place because no one has time to write all that, I guess. No one has time to write it or read it, I guess, is all I can figure. But. Yeah. You spend your eight hours writing to your contract, and then you have the overhead charges after <laughs> right, that. Right, 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 right. Uh, so if someone is, was to call, let's say, well, by the time people listen to this, this, uh, this summit will be over. But let me ask this question. So I assume that Deese goes to a lot of these type of conferences. Beyond, That's correct. Like, SMDC and all this stuff. So if you were... Which ones do you recommend? Like, it lets, there's tons of them all over the place. And I assume that the conference world is becoming more open now with COVID kind of waning a little bit. If, if someone was looking to go to a good conference for, for military stuff or for Army stuff or for what have you, where, where would you recommend they go? Um, I would recommend that they go to the um, the AAA. Wait, the... Uh, I don't. That's okay. That's all right. all right. It's not the U.S. Army one, is it? The, yeah. You, 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 is it? Oh, the um, can't think of it myself. The big, the big one that's the Army Symposium. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, the, um, the USA. Yeah, right, the US, yeah. United States Army Conference, yeah. whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah I'm sorry. I'll um, cut that stuff out, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would recommend a conference that is near and dear to the DOD Secure, and they, these are done by NCMS, the National Classification Management. Yeah. Um, but they go by the Society of Industrial Security Professionals, and they specifically do conferences based on the NISPOM, and they are uh-huh. getting into the cyber requirements as well, as dictated by the Defense Counter intelligence and security agency okay so if people want to hear your podcast where do they go they go to dod secure it's on all the major podcast platforms great jeff i appreciate it thank you so much for stopping by well thank you all right all right well that is going to do it for episode 55 of the cyber guy podcast for those of you who stuck through it on youtube thank you very much if you are a youtube expert and have any suggestions on how i can 
make my YouTube videos better or any resolution tips or anything like that, feel free to email, email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com or Darren at getcybersmart.com. As always, as you go through your week, know that knowledge is protection. If you can understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk, proceed wisely online. Thanks so much for listening or watching. We will see you next week.